Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Yeah, welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network on this uh, Tuesday afternoon, the 1st of June. Uh, coming up at 3.30 today, we're going to hear from Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, and it sounds like we're going to get quite an announcement regarding second doses. We're already hearing that uh, it's going to be uh, dependent on when you got your first dose. But if you got a first dose, for example, back in March, sounds like you might have the opportunity right away to book a second dose. Those in April later this month, etc., so we'll get the lowdown on that. All the details we'll have live for you uh, coming up at 3.30 this afternoon. Um, but this is kind of a segue into our, our first conversation here at the top in this hour around those who need a second dose. Now, Johnson & Johnson being the exception of the Janssen vaccine, uh, otherwise what we have are two-dose vaccines, a primer and a booster. But what about for those who have already had COVID? Now, certainly for those who've had COVID, there's still a need to get vaccinated. I know there's been some conversation or controversy around that. I think there was one U.S. senator uh, who wrote recently or declared recently that because he had had COVID, he's uh, not going to get vaccinated. Certainly, it appears as though vaccination offers better protection uh, than having recovered. But it also appears as though the combination of the two is pretty potent, that those who have recovered get Pretty good protection from a first dose, enough so that maybe we consider those individuals to be fully vaccinated. There was a piece that uh, was published last week in The Lancet making that uh, exact argument and pointed to some of the research uh, so far that illustrates the benefits of that. Joining us to talk more about it is uh, one of the authors of that piece, uh, Professor Anthony Harris. He's a professor of epidemiology and public health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Harris, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, from your perspective, what, why is it important to to address this question of, of what we need to do with those who have recovered from COVID as far as vaccinations go? I mean, I think it's critically important at this point in light of the fact that there's a vaccine shortage still. So both in the United States and in Canada, um, the two two countries have done great strides in getting more vaccine, but... You know, if we look around the world, there's still a massive shortage of vaccine. And why we did our original study, which was, you know, the, the first, to co- first to come out, but now has been replicated by, you know, as the article alluded to, at least five other groups and as many as a dozen, is the idea basically was that there was biologic plausibility, exactly as you alluded to, that people who's infected already that the first dose of the vaccine basically boosts them up so that they get antibody levels that would be equivalent to people who had never seen the virus and hence need two doses. And that's what these studies seem to have shown, that basically people who've already had COVID, after they got the first dose of vaccine, their antibody levels 7, 10, 14 days later were really high and as high as people who usually get two doses of vaccine. And so the real critical finding 
is not that the additional dose in someone who's already um, had COVID um, would cause harm, but it would likely be unnecessary, and that that second dose could then be given to someone who was not vaccinated sooner. And basically, as we know that other studies have shown, the more you can get the population having received at least one dose, the higher the probability of you driving down basically COVID cases and transmission. So the key finding is basically by giving some population people who've had COVID only one dose, you free up additional doses for other people. Now, I think most of this research has involved the mRNA vaccines, but uh, I believe there was a study in the UK that also looked at this in, in healthcare workers in, in the UK had received the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, and, and found something similar for those who had had COVID with a first dose. But where do we see the strongest evidence so far? Yeah, it's an excellent question. By, by far the strongest evidence is the mRNA vaccine. So that's the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. Right. And um, there's really limited data in the AstraZeneca vaccine. And as you guys know, in, in Canada, and um, I have a family member who's over, overseas in Europe, the whole issue of the AstraZeneca vaccine is even more complicated because... Um, I know a lot of provinces in Canada and a lot of um, countries like Germany are moving from one dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine and then when the mRNA vaccines are more available, they're mixing and matching. So that's a whole different (laughs) set (laughs) of issues. I would hazard a guess with the AstraZeneca vaccine, the issue of um, is, is there's less science and I think people are moving away from giving two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine in general. Right. But in terms of being able to answer that question, because, you know, we just had some some national guidance here in Canada unveiled today that, you know, perhaps those who had had a first dose of AstraZeneca, as you alluded to, could get an mRNA as a a second dose. But if there's compelling evidence that, you know, a combination of previous infection and a single dose of AstraZeneca might be sufficient, that could help uh, alleviate some of these these uncertainties then. Yeah, I agree, but that data isn't as strong as you alluded to. I mean, the the problem why governments are having problems making definitive decisions, which ties into this, is we don't know what antibody level protection is needed, meaning, you know, it's not like if you have a level above, you know, X that you know that you're fine for the next, you know, six months. And so that's that's the tricky thing. Now, I think what what our study and other studies did in that article in the Lancet suggests that when you have like a dozen independent investigators finding antibody levels after a single dose in the people who've had COVID as high as people who've gotten two doses, and then we have all this great data that people who've had two doses seem to now be protected for a really long period of time. I mean, it's a natural extension to think that one dose of the mRNA vaccine in, you know, people who previously have COVID is probably enough. And it also buys you, I think, a lot longer time to exactly figure out what antibody levels are really needed, because I think most infectious disease physicians like myself think that at some point we are going to need a booster vaccine, um, but we'll need a booster vaccine for all those subpopulations, and we'll hopefully have better data um, to help decide when you need that booster dose. All right. Uh, obviously, just infection alone, having recovered from COVID, does does create that that um, immune response and and everything that comes with it, the antibodies, the, the T cells, et cetera. But what can we say at this point about 
recovery on its own and how that compares to, as we see in these uh, studies, what it shows, the combination of recovery plus a single dose. Yeah. So I, I think what the article we wrote, and I think most experts, I'm an infectious disease physician. I'm a clinical researcher, but I've had the fortune of collaborating with a lot of bench scientists and immunologists, including on that paper. And they, feel, they seem to feel strongly that um, people who've recovered from COVID do require at least one dose because it seems to lead to a uniform, much higher antibody response. And it's almost the same boosting phenomenon of why do you need two doses if you've never had it? Well, the idea then is, is in a parallel fashion, if you've had COVID once, the first dose gives you that boosting phenomenon and has kind of that same immunologic response. So I think they feel fairly strongly that the countries that are um, saying that people who've had COVID do not need any doses at all are kind of making a mistake and that those people probably need one dose um, instead of two. Very interesting. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Harris, thanks for your insight on this. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Anthony Harris, um, Canadian himself at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, professor of epidemiology and public health, and one of the authors of this piece in, in The Lancet last week, which goes over the, the research that's been done on this and research that Professor Harris himself has been involved in. So, again, as he says, it, it's not as though the second dose is, is bad necessarily. You know, there's the potential, obviously, of some mild or moderate side effects, but it just it, it appears somewhat superfluous, a little redundant, maybe. So, look, if, if we're trying to get to certain levels of people with first dose, or now as we start to pivot, we're trying to get to certain levels of people with, uh, to have a second dose, it would be that much easier if, you know, we took everybody who had had COVID and had a first dose and said, those, those people are good, they're covered, they're fully vaccinated for now. I mean, part of the challenge is maybe is, is there a difference between someone who had COVID in, in March of last year versus someone who had COVID in March of this year in terms of how much lasting uh, immunity there is? Obviously, in the early part of this pandemic, uh, you know, there were people who had COVID and maybe they didn't know it or we didn't get around to testing them. And so the system doesn't know it. So, you know, there may be those who would fall through the cracks, but in terms of freeing up some doses, that, that might be the way to, way to go. But it doesn't appear as though we're looking at doing so right now. But again, here's another call from those who have researched this exact question to say, you know, this should be on the table. And if we've convinced ourselves that it's okay, we've got plenty of doses here anyway. Well, there's, there's a global situation to consider as well. So if Canada or the U.S. doesn't need as many doses then as a result, then you know, perhaps there's an opportunity to share those. So some interesting food for thought on that point. 3.30 today, as mentioned, we'll get the lowdown on what Alberta's plan is for rolling out second doses, making those appointments available, shortening the uh, intervals, perhaps. And what about the AstraZeneca question? Those who received the AstraZeneca vaccine back in, I guess it was March and April, what's the plan for second doses? Will the option of a second AstraZeneca dose be available? Are we going to heed some of that uh, advice given from NASI today and make other vaccines potentially available as a second dose? Find out for sure in just over an hour. All right, welcome back. We mentioned this the other day. There's a uh, expert advisory panel that the federal government had set up uh, to look at our border control measures. 
So on Thursday, this panel came back with a report uh, that recommended some sweeping changes to those policies, changes that would reflect the science and the benefit of vaccination, but also recognizing that the mandatory hotel quarantine aspect of all of this just hasn't worked and probably isn't necessary moving forward. Now, yes, this this whole system was obviously set up in response to the concern about uh, variants. We clearly haven't done a good job in keeping those variants out of the country. But the mandatory hotel quarantine, I, I think it's fair to say, has been a bit of a mess. And if we've got an expert panel of uh, scientists saying that we don't need it, it seems like something the government should heed. As we also heard last week, uh, some questions asked of the government from our next guest as to whether they're prepared to make some changes suggest that, well, maybe they're not. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Michelle Rempel-Garner, conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill and shadow minister for health for the opposition conservatives. Michelle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I, I think it was the day before, maybe it was the day of, this uh, panel report came out, and, and you asked the, the Deputy Prime Minister numerous times whether some changes would come for those returning to Canada who are fully vaccinated. You really didn't get an answer, did you? No. I mean, I've been asking this for months now, um, especially as jurisdictions around the world, the U.S., U.K., the EU, have started to set firm benchmarks uh, tied to metrics like vaccination rates. And you know, it, Canadians need hope. Uh, and, and certainly there's a lot of both economic uh, implications tied to this as well as compassionate uh, implications, especially for people who are separated from loved ones across borders. So I, I just, with this panel report, these are scientists. They have put forward very clear recommendations. At this point, I think the government's just not saying anything because they don't have an ad, uh, you know an adequate beat on supply for second doses uh, that's the only thing i can surmise it's ridiculous well, yeah it, it is it, it, to to be honest i mean you know especially given the the very valid points made in this in this report is, is there a sensitivity when it comes to border issues that do, do the liberals feel vulnerable on this? I mean, clearly they, they didn't do a good job in the early part of this year and both getting the vaccines here quicker and keeping the variants out. Do they, do they still feel vulnerable? Do you think on that? I guess, you know, people don't want to hear po whether or not decisions are being made on political calculus at this point. Right. right. It's, do we have adequate measures in place to keep the border safe? And that is a yes or no answer. And the, the report that came forward today had some science-based recommendations that could be used to get life back to normal, particularly now that we have more dur durable solutions like vaccines, rapid tests, better data, and therapeutics. And Canadians want to hear this, these are these are restrictions that are squarely within the federal jurisdiction. Provinces like Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, and others have been tying reopening uh, dates to these types of benchmarks. Why can't the federal government? So, what what would a reasonable system look like? Do you, do you think the recommendations in this report make sense? Would would the conservatives do this a little bit differently? What should our approach be? Well, I mean, the government has tens of thousands of employees to look at this exact question, right? But here they have a panel of experts who have provided recommendations based on science, 
Uh, and now it's incumbent upon upon them to, to to give you that answer, right? What I've been working on is saying that the Liberals need to put forward a plan. They have the resources to do this, uh, you know, and then Parliament can discuss the merits of that. But here we've got clear recommendations from a group of scientists and experts that I, I think, if implemented, would give Canadians a lot of hope. And we've heard crickets from the Liberal government. And again, I think it's because... You know, every week the delivery dates on Moderna changes. We don't, we haven't received a single dose of AstraZeneca from the bilateral contract. And I think that they're still worried about vaccine supply. And if they start tying things to second doses, um, I think a lot of Canadians are going to be even more cheesed than they already are that the, the delay is so long. Yeah, well, and we're going to hear later today what Alberta's plan is for ruling out second doses. I, I think hopefully we're finally at a point where we're going to start to pivot in that direction. Um, regarding the, the hotel quarantine, and, and it was really mm-hmm. haphazard when they first announced it. it. It caught a lot of people off guard. It was very confusing at the outset. We clearly have seen problems throughout. Obviously, we've got an issue with you know people who are just choosing to go home and you know say send send me a, a fine. Then I mean it, it it's had a lot of problems. What stands out to you? As, as some of the issues we've had with this? Well, the problem with it starts with the fact that the Liberals did not close the borders when it really mattered, like January 2020, right? So COVID and its variants were well into the country before they implemented the hotel quarantine program. There's no data to show that the hotel quarantine program stopped the spread of COVID more effectively than at-home quarantine combined with rapid tests or a system like the Alberta Border Pilot Program that the federal Liberals scrapped. I think that they put this in place just to discourage travel among middle-class Canadians uh, who would look at the cost of it being financially prohibitive, and that's a bad public policy outcome. You know, since then, there's been, um, you know, alleged sexual assaults at these facilities. We've heard reports of COVID-19 outbreaks among the staff and people who are staying at the facilities. Uh, it's, it, we've been, I've been calling for it to be scrapped months ago. Uh, there, this expert panel says it needs to go. It needs to go. There's, there's literally no reason why. I'm going to go one step farther, and I'm going to say I predict that if they scrap this, it's not going to be based on this evidence. Uh, Justin Trudeau wants to go to the G7, and I cannot see Trudeau wanting to stay at the uh, Sheraton at Toronto Pearson, uh, <laughs> you know, among COVID outbreaks and sexual assaults like the rest of us would have to. Uh, and I think if it changes, it's because of his self-interest, like most things are in this country. Now, it was interesting because we were set to, to chat about all of this on, on Friday. Uh, you were involved in the yeah. health committee meeting on, on, on Friday, yes. and things kind of went yeah. sideways. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about what, what happened at health committee on Friday. Okay, so we've got very few meetings of the health committee left before Parliament rises for the summer. And the Liberals... So in order for us to have those meetings, we need to have instructions to the to the clerk, essentially, on what those meetings are going to entail. So the opposition members, myself, uh, my conservative colleagues, the Bloc and the NDP, we have the majority on, of votes on the committee if we work together. So we sat down because the Liberals had been blocking our efforts to essentially program this out. We put forward a very reasonable motion on, like, okay, here's everything that we're going to look at. This and they they just don't want the committee to meet, so they've been obstructing our effort to essentially even just program the meetings out. Uh, like think about how bureaucratic and, and and awful that is. So here you've got liberal members of parliament 
blocking the Standing Committee on Health during a pandemic when we need questions on uh, answered on vaccine mixing, dose delivery, metrics related to federal jurisdiction, and more. I, I mean, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars that the Health Committee needs to look at and question officials on, and they're preventing those meetings from going forward. So they filibustered our meeting used a bunch of procedural tactics to try and force another meeting. And it's just like, I got to tell you, I'm sitting here at my desk in Ottawa right now. now. I have to travel on Sunday. I wish I was back at home. And I'm just like, it's like banging my head against a brick wall. And anybody, even if, you know, the most ardent Justin Trudeau supporters listening to this right now, Parliament should be able to function. I think that they're just blocking all of our committees this way. I think they expected to be in a federal election right now. Uh, they couldn't because of the lockdowns that came into force, you know, a few weeks ago across the country. I think that they are, Justin Trudeau really wants to go in a, to an election in September. And uh, he's just trying to run the clock out so that all of these questions that are unanswered, not just in health, but across the board in every topic, the military, the spending, whatever, that there's no scrutiny on that. And that's, you know, I, I guess I really hope Canadians don't accept that. I really hope they don't. It's tough to do, to get anything done here right now because of them. Yeah. And by the way, you were involved in an announcement earlier today, and I wanted to ask you yes. about that as, as we kick off Pride Month. A, a, yes. I, I think it's fair to say at this point now, six years after the Liberals took office, a broken promise to end the blood donation ban. So tell us a bit more about what you were calling for today. I think a lot of Canadians don't realize that Canada is one of the few developed countries in the world where we... Uh, screen blood donations based on sexual orientation rather than behavior. So um, gay men are essentially discriminated against by the federal government through this practice. So what we've been calling on the government to do for many months is to, rather than just blanket discriminate against gay men, is to screen uh, applicants or donors based on practices so, so that it's, you're not just precluded based on your orientation. The reason why this is so important beyond the obvious is that it, a, a homophobic phobic policy like this perpetuates negative stigmas mm -hmm. about the community, which, are, which in turn perpetuates discrimination. So we, uh, my colleague Eric Duncan and I, we've been trying every trick in the book. We went as far this weekend to draft a order, a ministerial order that the minister could use to end the blood ban. And if we're encouraging her to say, look, if you don't think this is adequate, then you have the, you're the regulator. You have the power to change the laws, do this. Right. And I think that this community, like the government can't tokenize them. There needs to be real action on this. And I would love to see this homophobic practice uh, terminated before, before the end of June. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Always good hearing from you, Michelle. Well, thanks, thanks for making some time for us me. here today. Much appreciated. You as well. Michelle Rumpel-Garner is the uh, conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill and is the uh, opposition health critic or shadow minister for health, whichever term you prefer. What is the upper limit of human longevity? And it's a question that people have been trying to answer for a long time. Now, there were those who believe that Maybe there really isn't an upper limit. Uh, that unless you die of, you know, a, a gunshot or getting run over with a bus, anything else involved in aging is potentially fixable. But is that true? I mean, obviously, what we know at this point uh, in terms of the upper limit of human longevity are those rare instances where people live into their 110s or even 120s. 
But what do we know for sure about how long that could theoretically be at the upper end? What could be a more normal extended human lifespan? So there's some new research on this very question, and it provides some interesting answers that potentially humans could live up to 150 years old. That might actually be the upper limit. So how do we know what that upper limit is? What would it take to make something close to 150 a more normal sort of uh, human lifespan? Well, joining us to talk more about this research, one of the scientists who was involved in it, uh, Dr. Andre Gudov, is uh, Senior Vice President and Chair of the Department of Cell Stress Biology at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, as mentioned, one of the authors of this study. Uh, Dr. Gudov, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So how, do, how does one go about then, and, and tell us more about this, this study then, but in terms of trying to answer that question of what the upper limit of human longevity is? Uh, this study actually <clears throat> is, first of all, this study is based on the analysis of many thousands of uh, uh, blood tests and locomotor activity records collected from uh, people from, through many years, and some of these people already died. And that uh, allowed a group of mathematicians and statisticians, uh, as well as biologists, to digest this data using artificial intelligence-based approaches, machine learning, neural networks, and so on, uh, to uh, uh, make projections uh, about what is happening during our life uh, in terms of aging, uh, which can be extracted from this uh, blood analysis and locomotor activity records, and uh, what would be the uh, projections. Mm -hmm. uh, and it appears this, this analysis brought us to a very interesting uh, discovery. It appears that uh, what is happening with age is uh, uh, what we name loss of resilience. It means that our ability to recover from stresses, and stress may be disease or wounding, uh, our ability to recover from stress and turn back to normal state in terms of our health, uh, physiological parameters, it takes longer and longer times uh, with our age. Right. And uh, uh, based on that, uh, the mathematical modeling was done uh, which allows to see what is the time when human life reaches the point when there is a complete loss of resilience. Complete loss of resilience means that even a small disease, which is routinely and easily handled and, uh, you know, uh, goes away uh, due to our immune system activity and uh, other processes of regeneration when we are young, uh, become a practically killer when we lose resilience. And this number appeared to be between 120 and 150 years. So what it means? In other words, it means that at the day when medicine would learn how to treat all age-related diseases, let's say that we can treat all cancers, all cardiovascular diseases, all diabetes and so on, we still will die but dilate and the, because we will finally lose resilience to the level that any even tiny disease will be a killer for us. And this will happen in the time interval between 120 and 150 years. So as the study points Does out then that... The, that yeah. 
Yes. Does it mean that there is no hope to extend life further than that? Of course not. It means only one thing, that age-related diseases which kill us are not equivalent to aging, which means that aging itself, which is loss of resilience, gradual loss of resilience, progressive loss of resilience, is one thing, and age-related diseases are executors of death at Mm -hmm. the time when our resilience becomes very, very low. So this only means that we need to put more research into studying aging itself and find drugs and treatments which would actually uh, slow down or revert loss of resilience. And then we will be able to extend our lives. Interesting. As the study says then, it says, we therefore argue that the loss of resilience cannot be avoided even in the most successful aging individuals. So at this point, we don't know how or, or whether to, to stop or reverse that loss of resilience. Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, if you look at the statistics, you will find that um, during the last 100 years, in developed countries, people start living on average about 25, 30 years longer mm-hmm. than they used to live to about 100 years ago due to antibiotics, vaccination, and other achievements of medicine. But at the same time, if you compare the maximal longevity, it remained exactly the same. What it means? It means that by treating diseases which kill us, we can extend the health span, but not extend the lifespan, because that loss of resilience still occurs, which means that all drugs we have today, all these magical, you know, powerful medical uh, advances, they only can extend our health life, but still are impotent to stop this loss of resilience. But science uh, these days, uh, after making this important conclusion, is focusing on understanding the mechanisms behind loss of resilience. And right now, lots of laboratories are working on developing treatments and drugs against this particular property. And there is hope because there are several clinical trials all over the world which are you know, growing in numbers, which are focused on mm, treating aging itself, not age-related mm-hmm. diseases. We are far from the ultimate solution, but we already... Uh, formulated the problem and work on that. Because it's interesting, the, the oldest human being who ever lived uh, died uh, at the age of 122 in 1997, so 24 years ago. So despite the medical advancements uh, of the last quarter century, we haven't seen anybody reach or surpass that age. So why, why do you think that is? I think that's exactly my point. Uh, the uh, main uh, analytical uh, advancement of this paper as well as other papers which show pretty much similar results that uh, for many pe- years people had this illusion and dream that if they defeat age-related diseases they will live forever. It appears to be more difficult because it appears mm-hmm. that age-related diseases only reveal our weakness which is ongoing uh, regardless of them as a parallel process. I would name it healthy aging. Healthy aging is simply Mm -hmm. loss of resilience. But even if you take, I can give you an example. If you take the mouse and we do it, you know, very frequently and we put it in the under absolutely ideal condition of life, there are no 
no infections, ideal food, uh, balanced diet, uh, you know, no stresses. Uh, and uh, uh, this mouse still lives two and a half years and gains frailty and finally dies. And uh, uh, this is what I'm saying is that this experiment indicates that even if you take away all the mm, conditions which we believe are causing our death, we still will die from complete loss of ability to return back to norm even after very minor stresses. And that requires a separate approach which has never been exercised by current medicine because nobody ever defined it as a disease. So right now I think we're at the stage where we can define the disease in but a better way. Aging is not uh, uh, just high risk of age-related diseases. It is loss of resilience, and that's what we need to treat. So do, is, is it fair to describe loss of resilience as a disease in and of itself? It's a, it's a philosophical question. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that my, many of my colleagues will be divided into two camps. Uh, some, uh, I think many people who are more practitioners, they uh, think that defining aging uh, as a disease is practical because it helps you to uh, give you like psychological uh, support to, to treat it. Because if you proclaim something as a law of nature, uh, you feel impotent. You feel that you will not be able to do anything about that. Uh, I would name it not exactly the disease, but I would say that this is a natural property of our organism, which is implemented in genetically in our physiology, which in principle can be reverted or slowed down. We simply never try to do that because we always have been focusing on age-related diseases. And this is what uh, we are doing in our research here, in, including Roswell Park, where because our approach is, uh, our current motivation is that if we slow down aging, we would automatically reduce the frequency of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson, arthritis, diabetes type 2, and all other diseases associated with aging. Uh, and uh, therefore, <clears throat> will be able to substantially improve quality of life and longevity. We're doing it both in Roswell Park as well as in a spin-off company named Genome Protection. And uh, we are already running a clinical trial right now in Mayo Clinic uh, in which we are testing uh, a reagent which we believe may have a chance to uh, reduce uh, loss of resilience of immune system of humans, improving elderly people to be better vaccinated. I think you know very well that elderly people, and today in the COVID-19 era, uh, we all become virologists. So you know that uh, people above certain age have challenges in vaccination. The immune system no longer as effectively respond to vaccine. And this is one of the indications of actually loss of resilience because inability uh, of the immune system to uh, struggle to battle the infection is actually a very nice manifestation of loss of resilience because even slight infection, if the immune system doesn't work well, may kill you. So one of the approaches is to uh, recover and to rejuvenate 
immune system, and that will be a nice first step towards improvement or extending the resilient state. Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Dr. Goodov, appreciate the insight on all of this, and thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All the best to you, sir. Uh, Dr. Andre Goodoff, he's a senior vice president at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. He's chair of the Department of Stress, uh, Cell Stress Biology uh, at Roswell Park and one of the authors of this study. So it sort of puts to rest the notion that if we cure age-related disease, then we can just keep on living for who knows how long. And this study is saying it's not that simple, that the clock is still running down. You can prolong... Uh, human lifespan. Right now, global average life expectancy is 73. That clearly varies from country to country and even within countries would would certainly vary depending on regions, circumstances, etc. But we still haven't broken that record of 122. Uh, Jeanne Calment, a woman in France, died in 1997. So that would be in that range of what they say is the upper limit, anywhere from 120 up to 150. So even if you cured cancer, cured Alzheimer's, you know, all of these age-related diseases, you still wouldn't get past that until you can figure out how to cure aging itself. And that's what they're saying. They call it loss of resilience. It's still going to happen. And at some point, it just runs down so completely that even if you've cured cancer and, and Alzheimer's and dementia and all the rest, you're still going to run into something uh, that will do you in at that point because of how vulnerable you will become. That that part is inevitable for now, based on our understanding. It's a really interesting. Okay, we got to take a break here. My name is Rob Breckenridge. You're listening to the Chorus Radio Network. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.